you're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode on obesity medicine with the great Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford and produced by Isabel Valdez, PA. This was a fantastic episode, very practice changing for me. Excited to reboot this here. We're hard at work producing new episodes and planning out the rest of our year. But during the summer break, we're rebooting some of our favorite episodes from the past few years. So if you haven't heard this one, then definitely take a listen. But if you've already heard it, this one's so chock full of pearls, I bet you missed something. So check it out again for that spaced learning. And if you're still craving new content, then this is a great time to sign up for our Patreon because now we're offering annual and monthly subscriptions. So take your pick, whichever you like. We have two monthly bonus episodes that come out there every month with me and Paul hanging out, recapping episodes and sharing our picks of the week. Patreon.com slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. We've done it. What a great episode. (laughs) We sure did, Matt. (laughs) Tonight, we're talking about obesity with Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, a just fantastic guest, Paul. I, I had, you know, I had high hopes for this one, and certainly she delivered. What a great guest. Yeah, as per usual, all killer, no filler. There, there are so many practical tips that I will be incorporating in my own care that I, I, I was, I was, I was super excited to hear about the entire episode. Now, before we introduce our co-host and producer for this episode, Paul, can you remind people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to. As per usual, Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you alluded, we are joined by the Cashlack PA, uh, Isabel Valdez, who is also the producer of this episode. Isabel, how are you? Other than muted. (laughs) I'm muted, but I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. What a lovely guest tonight. Her her energy is so contagious. I might just stay up all night working on this. Um, She, uh, tonight we, uh, we learned about the the disease that is obesity. We're learned tonight about reframing this topic. It's, it's a disease. It's a condition that our patients probably don't see as a disease. Sometimes we were not taught that it's disease. So tonight we learned that and some practice changing knowledge with the medications. It's just so much to talk about. We should just dive into this because there's a lot of meds that we can give our patients that can make a difference. And let me remind the audience that our guest is Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. She practices and teaches at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School as one of the first fellowship-trained obesity medicine physicians in the world. Dr. Stanford received her BS and MPH from Emory University as a MLK scholar, her MD from the Medical College of Georgia School of Medicine as a Stony Scholar, her MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government as a Zuckerman Fellow in the Harvard Center for Public Leadership, and her executive MBA as a merit-based scholarship recipient from the Quantic School of Business and Technology. She completed her obesity medicine and nutrition fellowship at MGH slash Harvard Medical School after completing her internal medicine and pediatric residency at the University of South Carolina. She currently serves as the director of equity for MGH Endocrine Division, director of diversity for the Nutrition Obesity Research Center at Harvard, and senior DEI advisor for the NIH and IDDK funded nutrition obesity research centers in the United States. And so obviously she is more than qualified to teach us all about obesity medicine. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Our guest, Dr. Stanford, has served as a consultant and advisor for Novo Nordisk, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Beringer, Ingelheim, Curax, Rhythm, Calibrate, Coral Health, and GoodRx. However, on this episode, no trade names were used when possible, and a balanced range of therapeutic options was included in the discussion. Fatima, we've been chatting for a while now, and we first want to ask you, can you give the audience a one-liner, and can you give them a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine? 
Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. I'm a fellowship trained obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. And a hobby that I uh, love is dance. So I am trained in ballet, jazz, West African hip hop and point. So just a few types of dance. I minored in dance in college, used to choreograph for Emory's Dance Company, the Georgia Ballet. Um, and now I just, you know, do regular stuff like see patients and conduct research and give lectures. Paul, you're trained in dance as well, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Tap, especially. It's just, it's kind of my oeuvre. <laughs> I, I have, uh, I have two left hips as a, as, as a Latina in the group. Uh, so I'm watching a lot of Encanto right now and it's, I just, I'm just going to not even pretend to dance that. I'm, 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 it's shameful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is an abbreviated version of this section of the show. So I'm okay. going to ask you, can you give us some favorite advice or some favorite feedback that you've had during your career that you helped, that you think helped get you to where you are today? Absolutely. I think, you know, particularly as we talk about obesity as a disease, it's the recognition that obesity actually is a disease. And so um, I was the speaker for the American Medical Association in 2013, right before their pivotal vote to acknowledge obesity as a disease. That was when I was um, a fellow here in obesity medicine at Mass General. And I think that really set me up for being one of the world's experts on this disease process and how we navigate patient care in the field of obesity, a disease that we're not taught anything about in medical school, residency, and fellowship. I think that was a pivotal time in my career being um, given that opportunity to share my knowledge um, with a group that has had major influence on this change in this narrative of considering obesity as a disease and not a lifestyle choice or, you know, associated with willpower. So I think that that's, you know, really a pivotal moment and has really defined a lot of how I think about obesity and how, you know, I navigate this world um, and space. Isabel, do you want to start us off with a case from Cashlack Memorial? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have uh, today, Miss DR is a fixed 56-year-old female in menopause with a history of diet-controlled diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea. And she comes to clinic with a request to, quote, get my hormones checked uh, because she's gained about 25 pounds in the last year and she feels tired all the time. She reports she gets tired going up the stairs uh, she's gained, since she's gained all this weight. Her vitals today are 134 over 78. She has a height of 5'6", which is 167 centimeters. She weighs 220 pounds, which is about 99 kilos and she has a BMI of 35.5. So our concern right now is, so how do we approach educating uh, Ms. DR and the trainees that I have in the room with me about how obesity as the disease, just like you just said right now? Absolutely. So, I mean, so many alarm bells went off when I heard this case from, um, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but um, the fun hospital, Cashlack, <laughs> Cashlack <laughs> Hospital. Um, but let's, let's take you through and like how my brain immediately thought through it. So we have a 56-year-old woman who's coming in who is postmenopausal. The number one person that seeks care in obesity medicine or seeks care for their weight, even if not with a specialist like myself, is a postmenopausal woman. I'll explain why. There are three primary times during a woman's life where we see major weight shifts. At menarche, when we go through adolescence and we um, actually develop our menstrual cycle, um, if a woman gets pregnant, whether or not she carries a, you know, to term, et cetera, those hormonal changes with just getting that positive pregnancy can cause major weight shifts. And then the third key time, which none of us can avoid as women, is menopause. In menopause, there's key things that happens with fat distribution. You go from having a gynoid distribution of fat, which is fat that's typically concentrated in the hip, buttock, and thigh region, to having an android deposition of fat, not android the phone. Android means male-like, okay? So male-like means central adipose or central fat distribution. That happens with that decrease in estradiol that happens as we all hit menopause. And so what happens is that's who's going to come in and seek care because they're like, wait a minute, I'm doing all these things. I'm, I'm eating well, I'm exercising. What is going on with my body? I don't understand what's going on. So I don't think it's an idea of her needing to get her hormones checked, but just normalizing the fact that menopause comes with often this weight shift that happens and is unfortunately not necessarily something she did to herself. It was part of that natural course. Now, we can think about like, so what can we do for her? We have a range of therapies we can do, but it sounds like she's been doing lifestyle modification. 
looking at her diet. That's why her diabetes is controlled with her diet modifications. We're not quite certain about her physical activity, but it sounds like she's getting winded doing things that she liked to do previously. Like she's like, my gosh, climbing a flight of stairs really is um, labor intensive for my body. So I began to listen to the patient and listen to what their weight has been. So I didn't hear this in the case. What was her weight? How, what have her weight struggles been? Did she struggle with weight at any other point in her life? What were some strategies she might have utilized that fell under this lifestyle umbrella, which looks at diet quality, physical activity, stress, sleep, for example? If those have been tried and failed, then I begin to escalate therapy. But what immediately comes to mind for this patient with significant obesity-related disease with moderate obesity is the potential for metabolic and bariatric surgery. May esta gustando mi podcast? Do you know what that means? Because thanks to Babbel, I think I do. Um, my accent probably needs a lot of help, but thanks to Babbel, I've been working on learning Spanish, which is a goal of mine and has been for years. Um, and with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. The best way to learn a language is through immersion, and that's where you live where the language is spoken, people are using it every day, but that's not possible for everyone. It's certainly not possible for me. So what's the second best way to learn a language? That would be Babbel, because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. I have found the Babbel application to be extraordinarily easy to use. It is quick, it's digestible, you feel like you're advancing quickly, and for someone who is competitive with the entire world, that is deeply satisfying. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash curb. That's 55% off at babbel.com slash curb. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash curb. Rules and restrictions apply. What would this go like for you, Paul, in the, in the first visit? I, well, I, I, that, that actually leads to the question I was going to ask in terms of, and you actually you covered a lot of this really well, is how do you describe patient goals? Because the question that comes to me is, Doc, what should my weight be? And I think a lot of times when we're thinking about obesity, we're thinking about the metric, like we're looking, we're either looking at weight or BMI, which we'll discuss is probably not the right way to think about it. And I hear you talking about sort of comorbid disease states and sort of other metabolic issues that can be addressed. So I guess my question for you is when you're talking to patients about what their goal should be or what, what the shared decision is, like where you're trying to get them, if do you mind telling me what that conversation looks like or how you frame that discussion? Absolutely. So first I will tell you guys, Ms. DR needs to understand that her diabetes, her sleep apnea, her obesity is not her fault. And so when you set that up, I think that's important because then that helps reframe the thinking about, you know, what targets are. I never, and I also don't really let people give me a target weight. Um, the reason why I don't live the, give me a target weight is because I don't really believe in targets. I believe in getting patients to the happiest, healthiest weight for them. Um, I also think these targets set us up for failure. So let's say someone comes in and they say, doc, hey, I want to lose a hundred pounds. And maybe they, they could lose under pounds. And I say, well, they were, I'm like, I say, I'm, I, I tell them I'm ignoring them on purpose, like intentionally. <laughs> and then they're like, well, Dr. but I really want to lose. I said, that's great. I, don't, I really, I, I'm going to ignore you. I hear you saying that. I'm not going to put that in the chart because I don't, I don't care about that. My goal is to get you the healthiest weight it is. And let's just say this patient loses 80 pounds. Let's just, let's just throw that out there. If they don't reach that a hundred pound target, they will always feel like they failed. 80 pounds may have been exactly what they needed to not only address their obesity, but their obesity-related diseases. But they're focused over here on 100. And so nothing that they did matters or really is meaningful because they did not reach the target. And so I think that sets us up for a really poor um, relationship with our this number on the scale, which doesn't tell us about adiposity, right? A number is just a number. We don't know if that's muscle 
We don't know if that's water. We don't know if that's fat. I mean, a patient can come into the hospital with heart failure, right? And we can diurese 20 pounds off of them. Did their BMI and their health status really change that dramatically in that hospital admission? The answer is no, right? So I don't don't hyper-focus on them getting to this number. And while they often have that in their brain, I try to shift them away from that thinking. So I know that was a long answer to the discussion, um, Dr. Williams, but um, hopefully that will um, kind of give you a way of how I think about it and how I try to shift away from this target setting, particularly as it relates to weight and BMI. Fatima, Thank you. Can, I, can I ask, yeah. often when a patient comes in, because I've made this mistake before and I've said this on air, but it's been like 300 episodes ago, that I... I would forget to ask, is it okay if we talk about your weight and then say, can you tell me like, where are you at in this journey? What's the heaviest you've ever weighed and what you weigh now? Because sometimes the person weighs 320 pounds, but they actually used to weigh 500 pounds and I would have missed that. So I love everything you just said, but I want to hear the rest of the question, but how do you have a great example for for that? And like, how do you approach that? Cause, cause often Mm -hmm. I I have this number 10% or so of like whatever Mm -hmm. their heaviest weight is, if they can lose 10% from that, then medical metabolically that is tends to be beneficial. And this kind of gets to Paul's question. How do you approach, how do you frame the discussion with the patient? Do you have a more practical way to do it? Well, so I, so I skip a little bit of a level. I don't usually have to discuss, ask them if we're going to discuss sure. weight because they're coming into the weight center. So they, they typically know what we're going to discuss. Um, if they didn't, they, they missed the paperwork. <laughs> so I, I, I have a little bit of a, you know, I don't have to do that part, right? Cause if you're coming to the weight center, I'm probably going to discuss something related to weight, um, it's probably going to happen. But what I, what I will say, you know, and, and kind of thinking about your question about like how I approach this is I try to collect all of this. I have this attitude that in the hour long appointment, I do want to go over that weight history. Like, tell me, you know, have you been successful? And I do air quotes there because people say, Oh yeah, that I was really successful. I lost 150 pounds back in, in 2003. And then I lost 125 back in, in 2009. And, you know, successful, but they are coming in with severe obesity. And so what I often do was is pull up their weight graph um, and I'll pull up their weight graph over the last 10 or 15 years and show them, they were like, you know, where they've been and how their brain has defended a certain set point for weight. So every time they lose, they gain and they weight cycle and they end up actually titrating up. And I, so I explained it to them kind of like, you know, the nerds that we are, right. But it really helps them understand why I think of how I'm thinking about not just them at this moment in time, but them across the life course, because that's going to help me decide what the best strategy is in terms of helping them address their excess weight. For someone like Miss DR that's coming in, we're primary care doctors listening to this, um, people, people in primary care, what should they be, what should they be plugging the patient into in an ideal world? What would this package of treatments look like? I'm sure there's going to be pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic, maybe yeah. maybe surgical therapy as well. Well, I would ask, first of all, what, so the first, one of the first questions that I ask in my visit is, you know, what are you coming in interested in? Are you coming in interested in, in lifestyle modification? Are you interested in, in medications, device, surgery? Like, give me a sense of where you are. I can tell you that even though I am an obesity medicine physician and it's clear uh, what I do for a living, that about 90% of individuals come in and the answer to that question, which irks me to no end, is notice I ask the question, what are you interested in? Lifestyle, behavioral, medication, device, surgery. That's the question. The question that the way they respond to that is, I'm not interested in surgery. That was not the question that I asked. I said, what are you interested in? I was very clear and I gave buckets. And the response is not surgery. And then I say, okay, wait a minute. That's not the question I asked. So let's go back to the question that I asked. And so, and the reason why I'm trying to set them up is because they have such negative connotations or thoughts about surgery that instead of answering the question that I posed, they answer the question that they felt to, to, to express to me, even though that's not what I'm selling, right? Like my goal is to find the best treatment for them. And so I have to get them to break that down. And this is when I introduce my snow analogy. And I will leave them with this before, and I'll go through the whole rest of the 50 minutes of the visit and come back to this. And the snow analogy is as follows. I say, okay, you guys, I'm in Boston. You guys, we got 23.6 inches of snow on Saturday. (laughs) What is the best treatment tool that, that we should utilize to remove the snow? And so the patient will say, Dr. Stanford, of course, you got to get a plow. Okay. I agree. A plow is a reasonable consideration for, for that degree of snow. 
And I'm saying, I'll say to them, well, why not use a teaspoon? And they're like, what do you mean a teaspoon? That's ridiculous. We'll, we'll never get the snow. Okay, reasonable. Okay. What about like a punch ladle? <laughs> that's a little bit bigger than a teaspoon. Okay, Dr. Shaver, that's bizarre. Okay. All right. Well, what else? Okay, we can use the shuffle. It's like, yeah, we all have to get out there with our shovels. You know, it'd be a good crowd, crowd, you know, sourcing event. So, and then I leave them with that. We go through their whole thing. I hear their story. And so I say to them, they often will say, hey, I want lifestyle, for example, which is fine. I said, but you're trying to get me to use a teaspoon size solution, which is the lifestyle for a plow size problem. It is that analogy, at least here in the Northeast, that typically gets people to understand why I would recommend that treatment modality. They're like, oh, I'm tr- I've been trying to use a teaspoon. That's not the... And then they sit and they ponder. And they may not come to a decision that day or even the visit after that or the visit after that, but then they come back and they see the struggles we're still having because they didn't choose the right tool for the size of the problem. And then we go that direction. This podcast is brought to you by Locum Story. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be part of the conversation. How do you find out if locums is a good option for you? You go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. I I love that analogy. And I I think part of what I was getting at with Paul, I, I think when I when I bring up surgery, some patients come to me, either they come to me asking for it or to be referred because they're ready. Or if I bring it up, they're like, oh, I would never, I would never do anything that extreme. Yeah. That, that's what I get. But I, I did want to ask you, met, so you mentioned lifestyle, someone like Miss DR, often they were coming to you, they're motivated, they're walking several miles a day, maybe they're eating fruits and vegetables. They're, they're, they're doing a pretty good job on the lifestyle stuff and they want to know like what else they can do. So are you using, um, behavioral, uh, psychi- psychologists and, and, uh, n- nutritional therapists? And is that something that you think every primary care should be referring the, these folks to or? Well, I think you have to hear where they are. So I, I hear in this patient, like with sending her to a dietitian, give her any new tools. It sounds like she's doing a lot of great things. Like, so, I mean, you could send her there and probably what would happen is the dietitian would be like, Miss DR is doing a great job. I really don't. I mean, maybe she can, I don't know, add another vegetable at lunch or, you know, something like very basic, right? Like she's not, there's nothing like really significant that they see, or maybe they don't see anything at all. So I only, you know, in my center, I have a multidisciplinary center. So most people are, everyone is seeing kind of the obesity medicine physician, the dietitian, and the psychologist, at least initially, that's making up the primary team. And then the dietitian can say, oh, you know, Ms. DR is doing great. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like there's a need for me to see her. The psychologist, so we have four PhD level psychologists that just work with patients with obesity. They say, you know what? I, I don't see any issues there. Everything looks great. And then I'm like, okay, well, that looks good. That's a check. That's a check. Okay. Sounds like there's not much to do there. We either can consider the addition of, you know, pharmacotherapy, i.e. medication. We can go down the surgical path, you know, we can, so we can kind of begin to, to broach those subjects. But for you guys, when you're listening to primary care, if you don't hear any, any kind of red flags, I don't think you have to refer to dietitian. And often people get frustrated because they're like, the dietitian didn't help me with anything. I already knew what I was doing. Right. So they get, they're kind of pissed off with you guys. Like, why did they send me to that? I, I'm fine. I don't need that. I've done that. Like I can tell the dietitian how to do his or her job. Right. Um, <laughs> what then, about the, what about the, the behavioral? Yeah. Yes. So that's huge. And so that's where you would spend some time asking them some key issues. You'd ask them, you know, do you ever feel like loss of control in eating? Like, you know, these are some questions you would ask. Another question you might ask is, do you ever get up at night to eat? You know, do you, do you get up at night or do you ever find that you've been eating in your bed? Like you wake up and there's like Oreo crumbs in your sheets and you're like, where in the heck did those come from? You know, these are kinds of questions that you're asking because you're picking up in that, for example, night eating syndrome and night related eating disorder. Night eating syndrome is the person that gets up 
they may get go to the restroom and they're like, Hey, let me go get some fried chicken from the kitchen. Right. That's, that's that person, the night related eating disorder, the people that have no recollection of the fact that they were, they wake up and there's crumbs in their bed, but they have no idea how they got there. And they know that that's their side of the bed. If they're sleeping with someone or, or they, it's only their bed and they're like, I'm the only one here. So something had to happen. Um, those are things you want to pick up. You want to pick up if, you know, they have ever had a history of an actual diagnosed eating disorder, you know, whether that be anorexia, bulimia, um, and sometimes with that, you know, that loss of control eating, you're picking up binge eating disorder. Um, these are the kinds of things that would definitely encourage you to want to seek the help with a psychologist, because even if those things are, you know, um, in remission at this time, they can reoccur. And they can interfere greatly with um, the work they're doing in terms of addressing their weight. So how do you broach the topic of medications? Isabel and I were talking earlier that we just, we find cost is a major barrier. That was a big question that we had on Twitter. Do you have any tricks for for how to get this done? So what's your spiel on medications? I would say that most people come in interested in medications. I think that maybe pharma, maybe... um, doing a job, you know, kind of doing a better job of like exploring the idea that, Hey, there are medications to treat the disease that is obesity. You know, it's interesting because we are not reticent to consider medications for any other chronic disease, whether it be diabetes or hypertension or anything else, right? We, we use medications readily, but I have a paper I just published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings two months ago shows that only about 1% of individuals that meet criteria for medications in the U S actually are on medications for the treatment of obesity. Up until, you know, um, liraglutide and semaglutide coming on the market within the last three years, I exclusively used um, generic medications, which include fentramine, topiramate, bupropion, zonisamide, metformin, um, um, naltrexone, et cetera. I never start one, more than one medicine at a time. I would start one of the generics, titrate that up, add another one, but depending upon like things I'm hearing. For example, if someone is saying they're really struggling with their eating and you know cravings in the evening time, that would give me a note that topiramate is probably the best drug to start. I'm going to start that in the evening time. I dose that in the evening time, starting at 25 milligrams with the titration up. Um, about 100 milligrams is about where most people um, is about the highest they'll go. I will push up to 150, um, but that's, um, I would say, in less than 5 to 10% of the, the time um, because you are worried about, you know, cognitive issues, word-finding difficulties, paresthesias, um, et cetera, with a topiramate. Um, Fentramine. People are scared of fentramine. And let's dispel Me some included. myths around fentramine. <laughs> it should yes. not. It's not a scary drug. If we look at metabolic parameters, AC, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association have published several papers on this topic. Um, actually, bupropion is much likely to cause elevated blood pressure and heart rate than fentramine. Yet, fentramine gets the bat rep and it really goes back to the fen-fen era. Yeah, it's 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 published multiple multiple times. So um, for fentramine, um, because there is so much angst against using it, despite its high level of efficacy, um, I have people do the following. I have every single patient that goes on fentramine. Um, I usually start with the capsule first thing in the morning. Um, I tell them that most humans, usually the first thing they do is they get up and go to the restroom. I say, get up, go to the restroom, wash your hands, tank your fentramine. This is important because fentramine is a stimulant style agent. So if you take it too late, you will have difficulty with falling asleep. So if you're like, oh my gosh, it's 11 o'clock. Let me take that fentramine. You will be up at night and then you'll be like, oh shoot, Dr. Stanford did say I was supposed to take that first thing in the morning after I went to the bathroom and washed my hands for 20 seconds. Um, but let's get back to fentramine. Fentramine has gotten a bad rep because of the fen-fen era, right? Fen-fen was a combination of fenfluramine, which is F-E-N-F-L-U-R-A-M-I-N-E and fentermine, which is P-H-E-N-T-R. M-I-N-E. Fentramine was the first drug approved for the treatment of obesity in the United States. It was approved back in 1959 for the treatment of obesity and has a high level of efficacy and it is super cheap. Um, if people are still finding that, hey, it feels a little expensive, I have people take um, their blood pressure and heart rate Monday mornings, Wednesday midday, and Friday evenings and send that to me on a weekly basis via what our, was called our patient gateway here at Mass General. Um, whenever they go on fentramine, 
or with any dose increase. So I keep track of that for at least the first four weeks that they're on the medicine. If I'm seeing any elevations in blood pressure pulse um, that are significant in nature of any kind, obviously we're going to pull that medication back. That happens in less than 2% of the time that there are any elevations in blood pressure or pulse um, that are are recognizable. Now, compare that to bupropion where I see it happen about 20% of the time where I do see dramatic shifts in blood pressure and pulse. But we feel comfortable and safe with bupropion because of its utilization for tobacco cessation, right? And for depression, right? But that's patients that, oh, if you listen to bupropion, patients are like, oh, doc, I feel a little... Feel a little flutter. I feel like, you know, they'll tell you that, right? That's that, that palpitation. So it is a stimulant style medication. I, I think of both fentramine and, and bupropion as stimulant style medications. But if you look at the metabolic parameters, um, in terms of post fentramine, post bupropion, fentramine is not the, not the bad player here. And so I encourage physicians, PAs, NPs, et cetera, to consider the use of fentramine in patients. I think it's a drug that we aren't utilizing. I've had significant success with many patients with fentramine. And there's some added benefit for patients that have had a history of like ADD or ADHD. It's a stimulant style drug. I can use it in lieu of their ADD or ADHD medicine to get dual benefit of both weight loss and you know, the tension piece of the puzzle. Now, I can say the tension piece is not going to be as potent as like a ADD or ADHD medication, but it may give them just what they need to get what they need. Um, because what we find is those stimulant medicines, while they do cause weight in the pediatric population, putting on my pediatric hat as a pediatrician too, we don't see a weight response in adults with um, the stimulant style medications, but with fentramine we do. So we can get dual benefit from the utilization of fentramine for ADD, ADHD plus the treatment of their obesity. So uh, this is Isabel. I, I have a question. Yes, so you're, you're checking their, uh, they're checking, they're sending you blood pressure and heart rate Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday nights, like any particular reason why it's that time? Like they basically, oh, I just try to, to vary it. Just, it's just vary try it so that them. I can get varied. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's no, just no. So for me to get different times of day. So let's say okay. times of days, they take it in the, and yeah, different times of day, different times of week. I just, it's easy for me. Well, this is what I've been saying for many years now, obviously <laughs> roll it off the bit. You know, I'm getting Monday morning, right? First thing in the morning, right after they take the drug, are they don't are we noticing some things there? Wednesday in the midday, just in the middle of the week, in the middle of the and then Friday evening, like are they noticing? I'm just giving those. It's just easy for me to kind of consistently remember that. The other key thing I want to say about fentramine, because I do have to pay attention to licensing issues. There are two states I know definitively that will not allow you to prescribe fentramine long-term. There may be others. So I want you to check with your licensing boards. Um, Ohio and Florida, for example, do not allow more than three months at a time of fentramine use. Interestingly enough, fentramine and topiramate is approved by the FDA in combination um, for chronic use for the treatment of the chronic disease that is obesity. However, we want to pay attention to your license because we want you to keep your medical license. That's important. Um, right. I think so. Right. So Massachusetts, I don't have limitations on using fentramine long-term. I have patients that have been on fentramine in excess of 20 years, um, that are being maintained on the medication like they would be on any other medicine for any other chronic disease. And that's what we're using. So just a key thing though, that pay attention to your licensing rules as it relates to fentramine, because there are some states that have very clear licensing rules that you cannot use this for more than three months. Now, what typically people do in that situation is they'll put three months, take them off a month, not because they want to take them off, but because the, the rules state that, put them back one for three months, then off a month. Then on, and then what you end up seeing on their weight graphs is they go down. And they don't oh, ever like, go white, right? Like they don't go back to like where they started because it's, you know, but they'll, they'll kind of do this little, um, kind of wiggly number on the weight graph, just because, you know, the drug that was efficacious for the treatment of their obesity has to keep being removed. So Paul, you know me, I'm excited to try this out. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure you're stoked. Well, we have, this is, this is, I mean, she's telling us how to safely do it. It's not, yes. you know, no, I, I, I feel much is, better about it. Yeah. The appropriate um, piece, I, I had completely missed. So we is, did I'm, I'm a excited. toxicology episode, Paul. They, those guys, the toxicologists well, they, they hate, hate bupropion. Yeah, <laughs> it's not good in an overdose. So uh, a, a few things are, though, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. No, not so, Tylenol, definitely, right? And no, this is really practice changing for me, though, because uh, I, mm -hmm. I would think what 
the bupropion just because it helps with uh, the anxiety and the depression that sometimes comes with the mood disorders, the sadness that comes with I'm overweight. So I'm like, well, let's kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. But uh, but now we're like making them hypertensive. Um, so well, I mean, is, you have to check. You right, have to check. Right, I mean, right. I would say just, just, you know, check. I mean, the goal. And then actually bupropion, if you were talking to my psychologist, you know, if someone has significant like generalized anxiety disorder or things like that, they would discourage against the use of bupropion. And then, of course, if you're going for a weight-neutral SSRI, the most weight-neutral of the SSRIs would be fluoxetine. So almost all the SSRIs cause weight gain, right? Sertraline, um, escitalopram, citalopram, et cetera, all cause weight gain. So our goal would be to go bupropion, if we could, right, as our first choice for depression and patients with obesity. And if we needed an SSRI, that fluoxetine would be the most weight-neutral of the SSRIs if we looked at those. This is fantastic. Uh, we we I know we have limited time with you. You mentioned oh, no, let's let's keep going. And bupropion naltrexone, uh, mm-hmm. they come also in a combination pill, right? Yes. How, let me tell so, you how to prescribe it. Are you ready? Yes. Are you guys ready? Yes. Take notes. Let's go. Let's go. I, so we'll I start taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> we start bupropion sustained release, 150 milligrams by mouth twice daily. Okay. Let's say they're losing weight from that and they're feeling really great about life. Then we might go initially up to 200 BID. We're getting really fancy, right? And then if we are really doing great in that bupropion realm, um, and you know, as a solo agent, we would go up to taking 300 in the morning. So two 150s of the sustained release in the morning and 150 in the evening for our total dose of 450. Okay. You might be wondering why, why am I breaking it up this way? There's an XL. Why didn't I just go there? Because if we look at that bupropion now Trexone combo pill that is on the market, it is a BID dosing. And so we're trying to mimic that with now Trexone. Now Trexone comes as a 50 milligram tab, right? I've heard that it's tiny. So my patients get frustrated with what I'm about to tell you to do. So I would start the naltrexone one quarter of a tab in the morning, which means they're taking 12.5 milligrams in the morning. After about a week or so, I can move them to a quarter tab in the morning and then a quarter tab in the evening, okay? Then the next week, I would go to a half a tab in the morning and a quarter tab in the evening. And then the final treatment dose would be half a tab in the morning and half a tab in the evening. I've heard cutting in half is nice. Cutting in fourth, not so nice. Um, so they're kind of, they're like, but it's not really a fourth. Um, because I heard it's like just kind of tiny to really subscore <laughs> that way. But what we're doing is that we're getting the bupropion with the naltrexone component and keeping in mind that the naltrexone component will cause potentially nausea, right? And so you may have to slow that titration schedule down. So I can tell you, sometimes I even do it every month. I may start a quarter of a tab in the morning this month. Then we add a quarter in the morning and the evening the next month, right? Because if they're telling you, oh my gosh, doc, I feel like I'm going to vomit my head off. Um, even if they don't do it, they just have that sensation. This is going to go really nicely if we don't slow that titration down. So that's how we do it. Magic this pearls. Is, this is so wonderful, is Paul. Yep. Yeah. All right. What about... See, we got, we just covered, we covered that. Let's do the fentramine topiramate, right? We got to cover that one, right? Fentramine, yep. you would either start fentramine or topiramate. I told you I start one or the other. I'd never start both anyway together. Um, so the combination pill I wouldn't use even in my, ins- my patients with high level of insurance. So let's say I start fentramine. I start with a 15 milligram capsule typically in the morning. See how they do. Continue to watch them on that. Usually I watch them for at least three months on that. If there's no issues with that kind of blood pressure pulse issue, then we can go up to 30 milligrams, um, which is the next capsule. I would say that going to the 37.5 doesn't typically give you any added benefit. It's like going from HCTZ of 25 to 50. You don't really see any change in blood pressure. You know, that whole thing. But people are like, hey, I'm on 50. You know, they feel better. Sometimes, I mean, it's, sometimes it logically it just makes them feel better. But I don't typically shift above the 30 because we don't really see any weight difference. So that would be the fentramine. The dose of topiramate, I typically start in the evening. And I have it dosed in the evening because we do know it's an anti-seizure medicine also, which means it slows brain waves, which means people fall asleep, right? Which means that you get, you're like now the hero, right? Because not only are you treating their excess desire for food in the evening and their cravings, they're also losing weight and they're going to sleep. I mean, you're like knocking over like all kinds of things. It's great. So you dose that in the evening, you know, at dinner or maybe closer to bedtime. 25 milligrams, then go to 50, then 75, you know, then 100 if you need to. And just escalate as needed. The goal is to use the lowest effective dose of the medication for the patient and then maintain them on whatever dose. Key thing that I have not mentioned that I would be remiss to mention is that none of the medications I've mentioned can be used 
Um, if a woman is actively trying to get pregnant or is breastfeeding, these are contraindicated. Um, we can use metformin, which is another off-label um, potential for um, um, obesity management. Um, and that can be utilized through a pregnancy, through breastfeeding, et cetera. So just make sure any women of reproductive potential are made aware that these things would need to be immediately stopped um, if they are trying to conceive. And for the GLP-1 agonist, which I have not mentioned at all, um, the reason why I didn't is because we were talking about like how to get these things cheap, which sure. is all the stuff I used. Um, GLP-1 agonists technically should be stopped at least two months prior to conception, um, according to the data that's out there. Um, so that, that's, you know, that means you're really planning, right? Like, as opposed to like fentramine to pyramid, I could stop like immediately. Um, but we need a two month window lead time into pregnancy for the GLP-1 agonists. Fatima, can you bring us, we have just a couple more meds to talk about. I know we're running short on time, but can you, can you round it out? The discussion of the medications? Absolutely. So, you know, other medications to consider, um, we have Orlistat that has been out in the market for quite some time. Um, you know, I think Orlistat is not one that uh, we typically use as much. Um, the degree of weight loss is um, um, small and it kind of works in this I idea of that, you know, the patients that have obesity just eat a lot of fat. So let's, let's block the fat, you know? Um, and so that's part of people don't like to have oily underwear. So it's not a thing that people like to have. <laughs> Gosh. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a common thing that, um, it makes it, you know, kind of maintenance on this drug, um, kind of a little bit undesirable, like, you know, it is available over the counter. Um, it's available at like a higher strength, um, by prescription. Um, but something we utilize, I would say less frequently for some of the reasons that I've mentioned. Um, the GLP-1 agonist are um, medications that are widely used um, and are, I would say, kind of seen as some of the golden, the golden children of um, <laughs> obesity treatment, particularly semaglutide 2.4, which was approved in June of um, 2021. It, uh, based upon like the New England Journal of Medicine step trials used, that were published, um, we saw about 14.9% of total body weight loss with that. I can say we have the best prescribing environment for the use of these medicines here in Massachusetts because all of our employer-sponsored insurance plans in the state of Massachusetts do cover all anti-obesity medications. Um, so we prescribe more of these meds than anywhere in the country at our center, um, just because our patients have a higher likelihood of having access to these medications. Um, do I like them? Absolutely. Are they for everyone? Not at, at all. Um, you know, I think with any of these medications, it's important to recognize that different meds work for different people. I wish there were a way to tailor medications to individuals like we do in oncology patients. Like, and you know, we don't just say, Hey, there's that cancer drug. Let's just give them that cancer drug to teach that cancer. Right. And that's kind of what we do with everything else, right? <laughs> Let's go treat that obesity, you know, recognizing that different people have really different response to different types of medicines. I may put someone on one medicine, they lose one pound. And then I put them on another combination, they lose 150. And you're like, oh my gosh. For example, with metformin, metformin is not a drug we typically think of for weight regulation. I have, you know, I think about a patient that I just saw today. Um, we went through all the traditional medicines with her initially, fentramine, pyramide, propion, zonisamide, naltrexone, et cetera. And she like, basically like nothing happened. I put her on metformin, she lost 60 pounds. Like who would have <laughs> thought, smoke. right? Right. I mean, it's not something that you would typically think, but something about that metformin worked with her biology and she's maintained the 60 pound weight loss for the last six years. So that worked for her and that's great, but it takes a lot of trial and error and telling the patient, look, I need your body to tell me the answers. I'm going to try this. We're going to see what happens. If it doesn't work, it's okay. We're going to try something else and we just keep going. And I think that's important. Obviously, I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on metabolic and bariatric surgery, but just know um, the most common surgery in the U.S. right now and in around the world is the sleeve gastrectomy. Um, people get worried about like, gosh, I'm going to have this big surgery. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. My goodness. I call it the rule of tools for surgery. On average, surgery is about two hours in duration, laparoscopically done. The max amount of time or say average amount of time people are in the hospital is about two days. And then it's about two weeks before they feel like, what? I had surgery? I don't even remember that. So um, I call it the rule of tools. You can adopt that from, from Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Um, <laughs> and I think those are kind of like things I think about. And I, then another thing I really want to emphasize, particularly for all of my primary care providers, is that once a patient goes to surgery, 
Don't let them go. They need monitoring for the rest of their life. Annual labs, the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery does have labs that we check. They're extensive. I always tell my patients we're going to take half their blood volume every year at least (laughs) to see how they're doing. And in addition to that, many patients will have weight regain or inadequate weight loss. So what do you do? You have the power in your hands because you can use medication. So I've published more on the topic of the use of medications for as an adjunct for metabolic and bariatric surgery than anyone in the world. I use my tools. I am I know how to prescribe these medicines and I will add them on as soon as a patient reaches a plateau or if I start to see weight regain um, post-surgery. And it's amazing what um, even if patients w- did not find that these medicines were efficacious pre-surgery, after surgery, that biology shift can cause this um, to, have, to have a great really re- response. Paul, I think you had some follow-up questions about once we start to enact these things. Did you want to take it from here? Yeah, I, I guess my, my question is, is, how do you counsel the patients to, to monitor, say, their weight at home? I feel like that's, are, are they, should they be weighing themselves daily? Because I feel like that can sometimes be discouraging if we're, if we maybe should be focusing on overall larger trends, but like what, how, how do you tell patients to keep track of their own weight and how do you counsel them in terms of that as a measure of success? Absolutely. So I, I don't have, I think the patient is, is patient specific when we're thinking about how they monitor. Some people like a daily weigh-in every morning. They like to get up, go to the restroom, wash their hands and get on the scale. That's a certain subset of the population. For some, it terrifies them to get on the scale, even to do my visit. So obviously, they wouldn't be able to weigh themselves at least every three to six months. So it just depends on who you're looking at. I am looking at the overall trends, um, but there are some patients that, I mean, I have patients of mine that will pull up their weight graphs. So it just depends on the personality type. If you know that um, it's anxiety producing for your patient to weigh themselves every day, don't tell them to do it every day. Maybe once a week, maybe every Sunday morning. They weigh themselves and then keep track of it. Maybe maybe even once a week is too much. Maybe once a month is, is okay. So I just say we're watching the trends. The other thing that I ask every patient to do every visit, they pretend like I don't ask them. They're like, Dr. Sarah, you never asked me that. I ask them to measure their waist circumference. Something as basic as a $3.50 tape measure is really actually a better a marker of things. I want them to measure at their umbilicus, their belly button, around the circumference, our target for women, 35 inches or less, men, 40 inches or less. Men, don't come and tell me, but I have a thir- I wear 38 um, pants. Okay, that's not where you don't wear your pants at your belly button unless you're Steve Urkel. So <laughs> let's measure at the belly button and around. So then I measure there and it's 58 inches. Yes, you may wear 38 pants, but the belly is not there. So we're gonna, we do wanna set targets there. So why I told you I would never give a target weight, I do give a target waist circumference. Paul, what do you, I think you also had some further questions similar to this area. Yeah, no, we're, we're closing in. I think we alluded to it a little bit in terms of BMI as maybe being an imperfect metric for for measuring sort of progress or even defining obesity. So I, I just wonder if you could give me a, a little bit of context for that, like how how reliant should we be on BMI as sort of how we're, what kind of work we're doing? I just want to bring up that BMI is not from medicine. It is not from medicine. It's based upon metropolitan life insurance table data, actuarial data from the 1930s and 40s. It only included insuring white individuals. If you were a racial ethnic minority, you are not included. Um, And we know that it is an indirect measure of adiposity. So I just want to bring all of these caveats out. So when patients are like, hey, I want to get to this weight because this is what the BMI chart says, or... Let's look at older adults. For any of us, I care my patients range from the ages of two to 90. Um, what there is this obesity paradox, which is when you really kind of cross that either, depending upon what paper you're looking at, either 60 or 65, we see that there is an actual, um, uh, you know, advantage for being in this category of having overweight, which is a BMI of 25 to 29.9 if you're an older adult. And so my hypothesis associated with that is that let's say you became acutely ill and had to go into the hospital and you were of normal weight status by BMI criteria. And let's say the metabolic demands of whatever your treatment was in the ICU, et cetera, was so high that then we pushed you into the underweight category. Recovering from that um, can be challenging. Whereas if you already had quote unquote, some excess to begin with, you're able to rebound a bit better. So I just want to take all those things into account when we just Think about BMI and our high reliance on it. I think it's great as a population-wide measure in terms of just looking at trends, but in terms of like working with the individual patient, we have to look at the patient in front of us. 
And it's, it sounds like it's more, I think weight is such a stigmatized thing that you can be metabolically healthy, even if you don't look like you belong on the cover of a fashion magazine. And or I think, maybe the fashion magazine should just change their cover. There you go. That's, that's even better. This is why we're have, we have you on. You have way better ideas than me, but I think, yeah, I think that's like, if the patient feels well, their metabolic parameters are okay. They're not having comorbidities. Even if the BMI, regardless of what it is, we're going to take into account what was their highest weight they've been and what's their weight now? How are they feeling all those things rather than just the absolute number? Absolutely. And even with my patients that get to a quote unquote normal weight, whatever that means. And that's the most important question. Not all of those other things I just asked, not the things that make my glass look pretty. So I have some wonderful slides for all these presentations (laughs) I give. It's how do they feel? Because that's what matters. And that's what they live with every day. You've given us so many great tools and we've already taken more of your time than we asked for. So can you give us a couple take-home points and, and maybe we'll have to do a round two at some point because I know there's we've barely scratched the surface of your knowledge on this topic, but a couple ta- favorite take-homes for the audience. Absolutely. Number one, obesity is a disease. It is not a disease characterized by the willpower or moral failing of an individual. Um, it is a disease. It requires chronic treatment and care like any other chronic disease that we treat. Number two, our language matters. Think about the language that we use. We need to eliminate the use of the word obese. We need to eliminate the word of morbid to explain obesity. These are out of the question. They have been canceled. Patients have the disease of obesity. They are not obese persons. They do not have morbid obesity. We don't call it morbid cancer. We don't call it morbid COVID-19. We don't call it morbid diabetes, but those things can kill us too. So let's call it what it is. A patient with severe obesity, our language matters. Uh, Number three, there are treatment modalities that are evidence-based, based in the science that are going underutilized or not utilized at all for the treatment of obesity. And that includes the use of pharmacotherapy and surgical interventions, of which only 3% of individuals in the U.S. get um, access to. We have to do better. We would lose our medical license, like I said, if we did this with any other chronic disease and had those tools and evidence to support their um, utilization for treating other chronic diseases. But we have the luxury of doing that because we often don't value our patients with obesity in the same way. So those are my take-home points. Fantastic. We will fade this into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Uh, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. Yeah, and the Digest is great, people, so check it out. Nora works really hard on that. So uh, we are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. Paul, we're still on Spotify. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Isabel Valdez. And to our whole team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is our executive producer and runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Isabel Valdez, physician assistant at Cashlack. Excellent. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.